Thank you for tuning in to Avant Life's weekly podcast. We hope this message inspires you, stirs your faith, and leaves you blessed. For those of you who might not know what Palm Sunday is, this is when Jesus re-enters into Jerusalem um, and he begins what we would consider that march towards the cross for our sake, paying that ransom. Uh, but it, it is an incredible story. Um, before we get into this, just a reminder that we have a missions update after this, our second mission partners initiative that we'll be doing. Um, and we'll just be recapping last week a little bit. But we've been doing a series called The Upside Down Kingdom, and we've been going through the, the Sermon on the Mount, um, which Jesus spoke and preached and taught from. And uh, it's a powerful story, and we're, we're still calling this an up down, upside down kingdom uh, as part of the series, mostly because the story of Palm Sunday is so upside down, it's almost a living illustration of what Jesus was preaching um, in relation to how the world would expect something to happen and how Jesus does something. Um, and so today is Palm Sunday, and honestly, it's one of those stories that constantly amazes me. Uh, the amount of detail that is present in these 20 verses that we're about to read is truly astonishing. Um, and I know it's going to bless you this morning. I know it's going to challenge your mindset. And most of all, it's going to ask us to reflect, have we been living the life, uh, at least recently, um, that is one that would qualify us as a true follower of Jesus or somebody who merely... Uh, knows his teachings, believes in his teachings, but still decides to do all our decision-making void of that truth, void of that blessing. Um, You'd be like, oh, that's so serious. I came here not realizing it was even Palm Sunday. Today was actually just like Pancake Sunday to me. So, um, (laughs) well, here we go. Um, This is a beautiful illustration, and I really do say it's beautiful. Palm Sunday is such a beautiful illustration of how we can, as human beings, have the truth and at the same time inherit a fallacy or believe in a fallacy. Um, And Jesus does one of the most upside-down things that he could have done in the minds of his fellow Jews in this, what is this beautiful parade into Jerusalem? And so as we take time right now, we've got to understand this is the week as we march towards Easter, right? As we, as we begin this week, would we take time truthfully to begin it with reflection, with some thoughts? And I mean, there's, only, there's heaps of thoughts around Palm Sunday, but with these particular thoughts this morning, would we take time to say, you know what, let's begin this, let's begin this journey this week as we head towards Good Friday, which uh, as a church we'll be doing online live. The team has done a fabulous job at putting together what I know will be a beautiful service that will bless each and every one of us. And then Easter Sunday, which will be live as well, I know is going to be a lot of fun as we celebrate that our Christ has risen. So let me read this to you. It's, I'm reading from uh, the book of Luke, chapter 19, verse 28 to 44. It's a bit of reading here, so... Keep up. Here we go. After Jesus said, uh, had said this, he went ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethage and Bethany at the hill uh, called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say the Lord needs it. In some translations, it says the master needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. Verse 33, 
As they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. Isn't that a funny like, picture right there? I love it. The owner's like, hey, um, y'all taking my donkey. Why? The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus. We'll come back to that. Don't worry. We brought it to Jesus. Oh, sorry, they brought it to Jesus. We can, do this. we can bring him a donkey too if you want. Threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the ground. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, He wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. Verse 43, this is where it gets real serious. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Wow. All righty. Um, this, is, this is interesting. I've only got two points that I really want to focus in on today, um, which is really three because conclusion's a third point, but I trick you with that. Uh, two points. Uh, the first one is that this signifies, and we see it here in Zechariah 9.9, a regime change. There's a, there's a change in the regime that's taking place here. I don't know if you've seen in, uh, you know, current history, in, in, in Myanmar at the moment, there is a coup taking place. There is an attempt change to the regime. This is being done through protests. This is being countered by violence by the government. It is chaos in that country at the moment. But this generally tends to be how a regime change looks like in the world of today. You know, we, we think about democracy as we see it in the West. What we don't often think about how, is how blessed we are to at least have some form of democracy, uh, no matter where you sit on the political spectrum. But right now, as we read this, as Jesus approaches Jerusalem on this donkey, this signifies a regime change. In Zechariah 9.9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold! Your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is Zechariah prophesying this very moment, hundreds of years earlier. We see Jesus and he, he's on his donkey. He's going, How he got that donkey always makes me laugh. Like he tells his disciples, hey, go ahead to this village, get the donkey. It's never been ridden. Someone asks you to say, hey, the Lord needs it. This just reminds me of a story, and I'm going to qualify it after I tell the story. It's not exactly the same. But when you first read this, you look at it and you're like, oh, man, Jesus just stole a donkey. <laughs> like, like he just, but the owner asks, and like, what, what's going on there? I, I remember when I was a lot younger, I, was, I would have been about 17. I was in Asia at the time. Uh, my dad was running a church uh, meeting, and I love back in the day, people would get up and share a testimony. It would be like, testimony time. <laughs> And this guy gets up. I remember this so clearly. He gets up. Uh, in Asia, where we were, particularly in, in the city of Penang in Malaysia, a lot of motorcycles, right? So a lot of people, that's their mode of transport. It's cheap. It's dangerous, but it's cheap. 
Um, I remember that year uh, in Penang alone, 400 people had died already by motorcycle accidents. Um, There's about 2 million people in that city, but it was halfway through the year and, and 400 people had already died. That's incredible. Anyway, this guy gets up and he's like, hey, I had a motorcycle accident. And I was like, ooh, lucky to be alive. Testimony, that was not his testimony. His bike was damaged, right? And uh, he goes on to tell this story. He's like, God, I can't afford to fix my bike. And, and uh, what am I going to do? And he's praying God's, for God's provision. And he tells this story about how he's walking down the street and he sees the exact pieces he needs for his motorcycle just there on the side of the street. Like perfectly, like not on a bike, just packaged. And he says, God told me that he'd provided. So I picked them up and I took them home. And he said, so he said, I took them home. You know what? God can use anything. He used a motorcycle store that had left out pieces out of my bike at the front. And I'm sitting there thinking, this guy straight up just stole from a motorcycle store and he's giving God glory. And if you read this correctly, you, 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 you know, if you read it for what it's worth, you could think that Jesus just straight up you know, told his disciples, I'm going to send two of you, take the colt. If the owner asks, just staunch him a bit and be like, the Lord said. The Lord said, this is mine. And I was like, okay, bro, take mine. I don't want to die over a donkey today. That's not exactly what's happening here. That's not what's happening. The, the fact that the, the, the language that's being used here is actually that the Messiah needs it. Now, you've got to understand, we, we're talking about a time in, in Israel's history where there's a heightened expectation for the arrival of the Messiah. And so the language that the disciples have used is that the Lord needs it. Now, the owner would have essentially had to have denied them the, the don- by denying them the donkey, he would have been afraid or he would have been convicted that he wasn't providing what was needed for the coming Messiah, right? And so it's not that he's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to give you my donkey because you're going to hurt me. It's more like he's partnering with what they're saying. Okay, all right, let's see this then. I'm going to give you a donkey and let's see what happens here. Jesus takes the donkey and there's a regime change because we see as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he begins to fulfill what Zechariah had prophesied that the king is coming to Jerusalem. This whole thing is as if a king is laying claim to a city. He's doing it on a donkey. He's doing it in humility. Now, uh, the crowds weren't as big as you think they were. They're probably more like COVID crowds, right? Everyone's six feet apart. You're only allowed 10% of the, the, the capacity of the road was allowed present. Um, and it was capped at 50 people on that road, right? So it's COVID. Uh, the real reason is that we know it's not massive is that they, it's happening outside the city walls. They, if it was anything too large, the Roman soldiers would get involved because that would be seen as a, a, as a kerfuffle. And so it's not as large as you think it is, but it's large enough that it's being recorded and it's people who are following Jesus and there's some Pharisees there and the Pharisees make comments, we hear about this, but there is a regime change taking place. And I say this because as we've talked so many times before, there is this mindset within the Jews that it's time for the Roman occupation to end. 
and they have this image of Jesus. And so they accept him as king. He's arriving as king. He's, we're going to see a regime change. Roman occupation is going to end. He's going to be the beginning catalyst to the revolution that is going to see the golden era of Israel rise again, the days of Solomon and the days of, of King David. This is, what they're, this is what they're hoping for. This is what they've been talking about for hundreds of years. And this is even what the disciples have seen in their head. So the disciples are excited. They're doing most of the talking, by the way. They're doing most of the parading, his, his, his disciples and his close followers. Um, it's, it's not necessarily the image of all these people from Jerusalem who didn't know Jesus just came out and started throwing down cloaks and, and palm trees. No, these are people that know Jesus, which is really important because they identify him as king and they know this because they intimately spent time with him. But... This is what I mean when that you can have a truth and a fallacy at the same time. The truth is Jesus is king. Their fallacy was that they believed he was going to overthrow the Roman Empire. And so they're pumped because they're like, he's coming in on a donkey. They have no idea. Jesus is going to come and, and Pilate's going to be out. And they're celebrating this and they're excited. Everything we know about the Romans and we spoke about this during our, uh, um, our Great Hope series, is that they rule with an iron fist. And this is no different at this time either in Jerusalem. You've got to understand they, have, they would lock up the high priest's robes and only allow them to use it for very select festivals. They were locked up and under guard every other time. The reason for this is that they, would, they envisioned, and they're, and they're not wrong, that if a revolt was going to start and really get the the heart of the masses, it would be the high priest that would have to start it and he would have to start it in his full uniform or his full robe attire so that he would carry the full authority in which that would signify. And so they would lock these robes up and only allow them to use it for very select important festivals. There was a tension there, if you can see, like you can't have your robes all the time, but I'll give it to you when it's really important. So we're not going to rob you of the, the important moments. We're just not going to give you the opportunity to do anything bad with it. They built a fortress on the side of the Temple Mount and named it after Mark Antony called Antonia. There's this fortress on the very the heartbeat of Jerusalem, like the very nation's most sacred area. Rome has come and built this fortress that overlooks it. It casts a shadow onto the temple. It has up to 600 soldiers at any one moment standing guard looking over the temple. This is the, the image is Jesus is coming down from the Mount of Olives in his humility. He's fulfilling the prophecy as Zechariah prophesied, as Isaiah prophesied. He's coming down. And in, a, in, a, in the coming days, if not weeks, we're going to see the regime change. We're going to see the great revolt begin, the Messiah placed on the throne in Jerusalem. I've got a question for us this morning, and, and this is simply is, is like, what does Jesus look like to you right now? Like, like his closest followers, whilst he was walking in the form of man on earth, understood he was king, but didn't understand the real regime he was bringing, which was the Prince of Peace. We see further on, we'll talk about it, how he essentially predicts the fall of Jerusalem because of how Jerusalem receives who he is. But who does Jesus look like to you right now? Now, I get we can all answer, well, he's our king, 
But what does that actually mean to you? Have you accepted Jesus as your king, but then crowbarred him into what you want him to change for you? Have you got your expectations of what the new regime in your life is going to look like? And have you been asking Jesus to fulfill that? Because if we were to read the scripture for what it's worth, there's a warning here. And is if we don't receive his message as he has intended it, then our life is still on the path to destruction, no matter if we acknowledge that he's the king of kings or not. See, there's a partnership here. There is, you're the king and I surrender. Not you're the king and you do what we expect. See, some of us said yes to Jesus 20 years ago, but we're still trying to get him to operate and overthrow the things in our life that we want him to do and operate in the regime we want him to operate in. And we still haven't let him in to the heart of hearts. And we're wondering, well, Jesus, what's going on here? Because I said yes to you, you laid claim to my heart, you wrote in in humility, but nothing's really changed. I'm still struggling. The amount of Christians I talk to, and COVID's been really good to expose this, that have the conversation, well, you know what? I know that Jesus is this and that, but I, I don't know. I, how does he, he doesn't speak to me or I haven't heard him talk ever. Like, and then they have all, I'm like, well, why? why? Like, how have you not heard him? If, you've, if you heard him the first time knock on your heart and you let him in, what stopped you hearing him again? And the reality of this, this thought is simply this, is that initially you accepted him in. You said, yes, you can have my heart. I want you in. But then you said to him, but I'm going to tell you what areas you're allowed in. I'm going to tell you what areas you're not allowed in. I'm going to tell you what areas you can work in and what areas you're not allowed to work in. And I'm going to tell you my dreams and I'm going to serve you faithfully as long as you allow me to inherit my dreams. And then all of a sudden you're wondering why you have the King of Kings resting in your heart but no authority, no power because you want the cross but you don't, want to, you don't want the power of the cross to transform you. You want the power of the cross to transform others. See, that's really what the heart of the matter here is Jesus has come, like half of their excitement is Jesus is going to fix others. Jesus is going to fix the Romans. Jesus is going to fix all the heresy that's going on. Jesus is going to do everything else to fix everybody else to make my life good. But don't you dare touch me. But you can ride on the donkey, I got you. That's exactly what's taking place here. The second point I want to talk about is that when Jesus finally enters into the city, he goes to the temple. Isn't that interesting? This would have been the upside down moment for them, right? He rides in laying claim to the city. He doesn't go to the Roman fortress. He doesn't go to the Roman barracks that overthrow the soldiers. He goes straight to the temple. And what does he do? Let's read it. He says, he, verse, nine, uh, verse 45 to 46 says, When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple. But the chief, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Isn't it? It's, I look at this and go, he could have gone anywhere. And this is what tells us that their, their thoughts of, of what he was going to do is a fallacy, is that if he was going to be that big revolt, that big change of regime that they thought it was going to be, he would have gone to the fortress and tore it down. He would have gone to the barracks and leveled it. 
in a click of his finger, he would have, he would have made all of the, uh, all the Roman soldiers had their own rapture back to Rome. <laughs> Off you go. He doesn't do any of that. What does he do? He goes straight to the temple. See, I love this. The moment we welcome Jesus in, the moment we, we say, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords now, and we allow him to lay claim to our life in a healthy context, he's not going for the areas you think he's going for. He's going for the temple. He's going for your heart. See, the law of Moses commanded that every male of Israel must redeem his soul by giving half a shekel as a temple tax. Half a shekel. See, they weren't allowed. They were prohibited from using Roman or Greek coins because they had an image of either Caesar or the ruler of Greece at the time. And they, that, was, that was blasphemous to give such a pagan image as worship to God. So what would happen is, is that they would bring their Roman and they would bring their Greek coins and they would what? They would exchange them at the currency exchange. At the temple. And part of that exchange, there was a fee for it, would go to the high priest's family. The rest would go to the local bankers. And, and then there was also the, the law of Moses that commanded them to bring an animal for a sacrifice. And, and a lot of them are traveling a long way. Like Israel, Jerusalem's population at this time of Passover would, would, it would explode by hundreds of thousands of extra people as the Jews from around the world or the known world would return back for this moment and do what they need to do is, and, and, and have their pilgrimage to the temple. They're not going to bring the animals with them. It's too hard. It's too long. It's expensive. They would just bring some money and they'd buy an animal for their offering after they got to Jerusalem. And see, this is where it's funny because the, the people in the temple understood this. The businessmen of the temple understood this. So they would hike the prices. So you'd arrive and they'd be a little higher than usual but you could get your ball, a pair of birds in a wicker basket, whatever you needed. They used to meet outside the temple, the money changers and those who sold the animals. It happened outside of the temple, but along came this one high priest and he, and he decided to bring them into the temple, into the courtyard. It was, a, it was a convenience thing, right? It was a business transaction. It was a lot easier to do it with inside the temple. And so he did exactly what Jesus didn't want them to do, and he made the temple a den of thieves. He made it all about convenience. <laughs> I love it. Jesus doesn't go to the Roman fortress, doesn't go to the heart of the enemy occupation, doesn't go to the barracks like I've mentioned of the ungodly. He goes to the temple, goes to the heart of the Jewish religion, and he drives out the people who are providing a service of convenience for those who have come to worship. Can I ask you this question this morning? Is convenience crippling your worship? Have you made convenience a priority when it comes to your worship? Is it convenient to have it scheduled and routined for 10 a.m. so that the worship team here at church can lead us through three songs and it conveniently ticks a box for you 
in your understanding of worship. Or maybe it's easier for you to only put it on while you're in the car. Or maybe worship for you is simply singing and that alone. But is your convenient form of worship beginning or has it crippled you? See, Jesus' biggest issue here is worship is not about convenience. It's about commitment. He didn't want those things taking place in the temple because the whole concept of worship is that it would cost you something. Not that you would find a way to make it so convenient that it didn't even bother you didn't even cause you any form of deterrence. Like you didn't even have to actively think about it. If you don't have to actively think about your worship because you've routined it so conveniently in your life, is it even worship or is it just therapy? Worship is not about our convenience. It's about His commitment. When we worship, we're not worshiping our commitment Our commitment worships His commitment. What commitment was that? That He committed His life to the cross and that He rose again. That's why we get to worship in the fullness now is that He was committed to pay the ransom for our debt. He took the the ownership of our sin and the wrath of God that was just so that we could have righteousness given to us through Him. It's not about convenience. And I say this because, man... I really do hate the thought that each and every one of us, it's true, at some point you've looked and you've said, how can I make my relationship with Jesus more convenient? How can I fit him into my schedule? But this, this dynamic that you find yourself in robs you, it cripples you, because we shouldn't be asking how can I fit Jesus into my life, is how can I fit my life into the plans of Jesus? Because if he's the center of your life, if he's your heartbeat right now, then every ounce of blood in your body should be pushed through because you want to give him glory. Every breath that you take is an opportunity to sing his praises. Every step or every, every motion of your body is another opportunity to give him glory. If worship to you is convenience, then Jesus to you is convenience. And if he's convenient for you, you're not going to bring him to your workplace because I can tell you right now, Jesus is not a convenient thing to have in your workplace. Not today. See, if Jesus is convenient for you, then you're not going to share him at that awkward friend dinner table. You know, when everyone's talking about politics, you're like, hey, how does everyone feel about Jesus tonight? Well, Jesus would have voted... You know, for the greens, because Jesus, he said, take, well, Jesus is a carpenter. He chopped down trees. Figure that one out. <laughs> Just saying, like, like, when is Jesus convenient for you then? It's not convenience. It's his commitment. It's not our vanity. It's his victory. See, are we treating worship like vanity? Is it something that we do to show people how good of a follower we are? Is it, a, is, it, is it a vain concept in our mind that we're like, hey, look at me. I raised my hands in the verse. Mm. In the verse, Colin. Not, not the bridge, not the chorus, but in the verse when I'm not even sure what the words are. I closed my fist. I had a fist. I had a power fist going, guys. 
When did you last do that? Like, I feel like sometimes we, like we treat worship with this, this vain concept of an image that we're worshiping, but this is the flow-on effect of the convenience that we can have. Because only a convenient mindset would understand that vanity serves convenience. It does not serve commitment. It does not serve commitment. You, you oh man, today I at least carried a 75-inch TV, hypothetically, in worship. It was big. You probably have to, anyway. Pastor Ben, I knelt in worship today. <gasps> Boom! That's a Hail Mary touchdown right there. You knelt in worship? Arms wide open? Oh, time has come, come on. It's not about vanity, it's about his victory. We worship that our, our living God, living, is victorious. Ain't nothing defeated him. It's the simple truth. That's why we can get up here and worship for us in song and in attitude and in character through the mindset of his victorious nature allows us to lay claim to things that we wouldn't have if we don't have that revelation. And I don't mean just like, oh, Lord, I pray for healing right now. I mean like you can lay claim to healing. You can lay claim to provision. He's victorious in all situations. But you've got to understand the commitment to understand the victory. See, if you understand the convenience, you'll get the vanity. If you understand the commitment, you'll get the victory. And finally, with that thought in mind, he's gone to the temple because it's not about our guilt. It's about his glory. It's about his glory. See, often we worship because we feel guilty. And this is where the therapy comes in. We use worship as a therapy. Oh man, I've done this and that. But really, if we live a life of worship, not sing a life of worship, live a life of worship, that is the greatest antidote to guilt and sin that you could find in Jesus Christ. Because all of a sudden you're asking this simple question, is my life, is my choice, is this decision bringing Him glory? It's a really simple equation. And I know it's really difficult to allow yourself to go through it, but you ask yourself, is being frustrated with the lady at the checkout giving Him glory? I realised I had an issue of frustration last night when I dropped the shampoo bottle and I just got real angry in the shower. I'm like, I'm angry about this. <laughs> I talk to God a lot in the shower. And I'm like, I just dropped it. And I was like, but it was one of those things when you're grabbing it and it clips something and then it slips out of your hand and falls. And I, just saw, I was like, why am I so angry about this? Like to the point that I'm just like, Ugh. and God's like, man, you're pathetic. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Like, and I thought to myself, like, how interesting, and I love message prep because, it, like, it really messes up my shower time. But I thought to myself, I was like, man, <laughs> you're such a weirdo that does, like, does your frustration in the little things that are pointless give God glory? Like, I know it's easy to say, well, I did this and this on the bigger picture and it gave him glory. Absolutely. Most Christians are wonderful in that. But Jesus actually says in most of his upside-down kingdom sermons, it's the unseen things, it's the little things, it's the things you can hide, it's the things that you can fabricate, it's the things that you can make look like there's something else that they're not. Those are the things that are the most difficult to change. 
Do you see Jesus as the king of the new regime in your life? And is that new regime commitment, victory, glory, it's a convenience, vanity, guilt? Because if it's the latter, if it's the convenience, if it's the vanity, if it's the guilt, then you're going to be in this conflict cycle your whole walk with Christ. Now, I'm not saying you won't get to heaven. I'm just saying you won't live the life he intended you to live here on earth. And he's intended you to live a wonderful life. He's intended you to live a life so abundant and overflowing that each and every morning when you wake up, you would be so excited, no matter what's challenging you that day, you'd be so excited for what God is asking of you, what he's empowering you with, the opportunity, the door open, the influence that you could be a soothing balm of relief to those that have so many questions and no answers, going through pain and grief. Or you could stand on the solid rock of conviction and righteously speak out the truth and watch it shake the very fabric of society, tearing it apart. This is my conclusion. We see here in verse 39 that some of the Pharisees that were in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he says to them, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And uh, I know often the Pharisees have a bad rap, but if you do a lot of reading about this, there were still a lot of Pharisees that were indifferent to Christ or actually for him. And when you read this, you can sort of feel like these are the bad Pharisees, like tell them to stop. But actually, if you look at the context of what's taking, what's taking place here, these are probably Pharisees that were either interested or indifferent or actually pro-Jesus. And they'd come out to see his arrival, not to chastise him, but just more out of interest. And, and the reason they say tell them to stop is probably less that they're upset that his followers that have always given him praise were praising him but more the fact that it felt just to them as, as, a, as a big show. Because they, they hadn't done the, the, you know, there was an issue in their mind at the moment. And Jesus says something that I think is really powerful. He's like, oh, well, if I tell them to be quiet and if they were to be quiet, then those stones you see over there, well, they're going to begin to cry out. And, and we've spoken about this before. He's at the southern or the southeastern gate of Jerusalem. It's the closest gate to the temple. Uh, in the Jewish religion, there's going to be one giant resurrection and it's going to begin at the temple and those closest to the temple are going to be resurrected first. Those, those saints and prophets of old, those high priests of old, the important aristocracy of the Jewish nation of old, all paid for, all were given the predominant or uh, the closest grave sites to the temple outside the city walls. Now, the stones are on there for multiple reasons. One, because a priest could not walk over a grave or come close to a grave or become unclean. So the people would put stones on there to indicate that this is a grave so that the priest would know to stay clear of it. They also put stones on the grave because they believe that, you know, some of the mysticisms and the beliefs was that the soul could remain in that grave spot for a long time, years. And therefore, the stones would keep them stuck and not allow them to come up and wander Now, that wasn't from the Old Testament. That's just the influence of different religions. All of this is taking place. Some of them put stones there because they thought that that evil spirits could get into the grave like a golem. Nonetheless, they signified the graves of those who had come before. Jesus says those rocks will cry out. I 
And what I love about that image is that there's things that God needs us for and there's things that we just get to humbly partner with. It doesn't need our worship. It doesn't need our praise. He's not an egotistical God. It's just outside of the equation of the relationship. It's a part of being in relationship with Him. Jesus says, well, if you won't let the present, the past will. The past already has. Think about it. Zechariah, he's fulfilling the very words Zechariah prophesied. The very words that all these priests and really religious men would have read and studied and adhered to. He's saying, hey, the past is already crying, but it will make it audible now. The present won't worship me. This morning, we're going to go into our missions update just straight after this, but I want you to think about this. What is, who is, how is Jesus king to you? Have you made the convenience of your relationship with Him something that actually cripples you? And at the end of the day, have you or have we completely lost all focus of why we do what we do, the privilege it is to get to do it, the mission set before us, the empowerment given to us, the provision so faithfully laid out each and every day for us to partake of, have we lost focus of all that? Have we, have we not fixed our eyes on Jesus? And are we beginning to sink in the, in the tides of this world? Are we beginning to sink in the wind and the storm of this earthly kingdom instead of being steadfast in what He's given us, the eternal? Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because it does not acknowledge Him as the King of, and the Prince of Peace. They've, they've deliberately hidden their hearts from him. And I, I can't help to think, hey, some of us, if not all of us, need to be reminded that it's not simply accepting Jesus as our Lord, or as our Savior, sorry, it's accepting him as our Lord, the sovereign king of our heart, the one that directs, the one that transforms, the one that empowers. Without him, we are nothing. And as we begin this week of reflection, as we take the moment this week to begin to walk towards Good Friday and then Easter Sunday, would we not just allow this week to be like any other week? Let's not get in the conversation of, well, historically this didn't happen this day. No, it's not about that. It's not about legalism right now. It's about the grace that we've given to us. Half the issue that we see here is that people keep responding to the message of Jesus as a, as a legalistic thing or as a license, not as truth and grace, not a tension that is so beautiful it can cha- transform your life. And so with that in mind, what is changing your heart to save you from destruction? Is that cool? It's really weird to go into a missions update after that, hey? It is what it is.
I love that, that as a church we're doing global missions. Last week we discussed the whole understanding of uh, giving to the needy. We discussed that we're partnering with church planning and, and church planner de- development in, in Italy. Um, and you can watch last week's sermon to see that update. And we're going to be starting to email more information about this in the coming weeks. But today we're going to talk about our second uh, partnering initiative. And this is going to be happening in India, as we mentioned in, on Vision Sunday, with Pastor Christo and Sarah Emanuel in a city called Chennai. And they have a few campuses outside of Chennai in different provinces or different states. And we're excited about this because we haven't changed our formula at all. Um, we're going there to help develop leaders. We're, we're giving into missions to help fund and build facilities that's going to train church planters. Um, if you read any book about discipleship in India, you'd realize that India is one of those nations that will be reached by Indians. You know, some nations, it's <laughs> easy come, easy go. But then there's other nations you realize that the only way the gospel is going to take root is from within. And, and yes, we're going to be sending missionaries to different countries right across the life of this church. I get that, and we're pumped and stoked for it. But in relation to Italy and in, in India, we're talking about equipping those that are on the ground 24-7, day in, day out. Those who have had the call, they either you know, were born and native to those countries or they've lived there and they've had the call their whole life. You know, we're, we're talking about building facilities that is not to hold a Sunday service, but would develop thousands of church planters so that they could go into each and every village, each and every town, each and every city and proclaim that Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That they would hear the story that we talked about for the first time in their very own language. That Jesus would turn up and minister to them through the gospel that's being shared so diligently. Because why? Because churches like us decided to look beyond our own city, beyond our own province, beyond our own country, and said, you know, we can make a difference. Now, like I said before, we would be sending people to these different mission partners to learn. Not to take photos with brown kids. You can, but that's not the point. But we have a video from Pastor Christo and Pastor Sarah that I want to show so... Would you turn your attention to this beautiful message from Chennai, India? Dear friends in Avant Church, Pastor Ben and Emma, this is Christo and Sarah bringing you folks update from Chennai, India. And we have three amazing daughters. I'm going to let them introduce uh, themselves to you. Hi, I'm Evangeline. I'm 13 years old and I'm studying in eighth grade. Hi, I'm Rema. I'm 8 years old and I'm studying in 3rd grade. Hi, I'm Simona and I'm 10 years old and I'm studying in 6th grade. Before I share more, I'm going to ask Sarah, what is, what is your journey like? Do you love India and uh, do you love spicy food and what do you feel? Uh, of course I love India. I think uh, I really have always felt like God prepared me to be here, to, to live here, to have my family here. Um, 
The church is like my very own family. They're so dear to me. Uh, spicy food, uh, at first, to tell you the truth, I didn't like it at all, but the tongue is really adaptable. So over several years of having to eat spicy food, I actually love it now. And you'll often catch me in the fridge mm. uh, taking spoonfuls of curry and just eating them. He oh. won't even do that. So <laughs> yes, I love spicy food. See, God called us in the year 2006 to India right after our marriage. Remember those days? Of course I do. So we obeyed the call of God. We got married in Canada. We came to Chennai and we started a church in a living room. And it was a humble beginning. But you know what? God is faithful. We have had so many challenges in the last 14 years of being in this country and pioneering Living God Church. But God's faithfulness brought the church from pretty much nothing to so many hundreds and hundreds of people worshipping Jesus here in Chennai campus and a, uh, another campus that's about 500 kilometers away from here uh, in a city called Coimbatore. God is changing lives. We love church, planting church, uh, discipling people, raising up leaders. God is doing amazing things. Right now, um, as you all know, this is a season where uh, there's a lockdown, pandemic, everything is happening. But God has given us this window of an opportunity, you know, uh, of gathering in the church. In India, we are gathering in church. We are praising Jesus. Pray for the safety of the Indian people. And also, we are right now under a renovation work. We are renovating church. Uh, that's happening. And we are also believing God for the next season of raising up many more leaders and sending them out as church planters and people who will change others' lives. We are so excited for this partnership, for you guys journeying alongside us, praying for us, standing with us. We can't wait for the day to host all of you here in India and of course, feeding you spicy food. Um, so God is doing amazing things. Thank you so much for taking this time to hear from us. May the Lord bless you guys. Uh, once again, a big God bless you and a thank you from Christo and Sarah all the way from Chennai, India. Man, isn't that amazing? I love watching that video. Isn't his daughters just so cute? Just like, oh, so cute. Uh, that's just a bit of their story and, and there's wonderful like miracles that I know over the years they're going to be able to share. Actually, Pastor Christo and Pastor uh, Sarah came here uh, and shared at our One Heart, uh, I think a month before, was it a, a month before lockdown or something crazy like that, um, ages ago. But that gives you an, uh, an insight into what God can do with somebody simply, two people simply going to India. But imagine what he can now do with hundreds of people partnering with that very, that, that tenacious, that, that audacious church planting spirit to see hundreds of church planters developed, raised up and sent out across India. We want to be a part of that. We've been called to be a part of that. You've been called to be a part of that. Now, like I said, yes, we'll be doing mission trips, uh, but that's not the goal, though that'll be fun and it'll be insightful. It's not the goal. The goal is to see a nation like India with over 1.3 billion people 
begin to fall in love with Jesus again. And I say again because if you don't know your history very well, Doubting Thomas, we all love Doubting Thomas. He got that moniker and it stuck. He traveled the furthest for the gospel and he traveled to India. He traveled to Kerala, which is where one of those campuses uh, is in. And he shared the gospel. There's, there is a huge Christian um, congregation, a huge Christian population within Kerala called Thomasites because of his faithfulness. I believe that there's going to be in, in years to come uh, hundreds, if not thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are going to be called believers of Jesus because we had the same spirit as Thomas. We went as far and we did as much as possible to see the gospel resonate. Church, uh, I'm going to end on this and then we're going to back into worship. And it's simply this. Um, missions is one of those things that when we commit to, we commit to. And we're asking each and every one of you to spend some time with God and ask Him how much you want to faithfully give into missions. Missions is different to like a one-off offering. Missions is a monthly commitment that I'm going to give $10. I'm going to give $100. Whatever it is, you've got to talk to God about it and come up with that commitment and, and be committed to that. And I say that because people on the other side of the world, in Italy and in India, their budgets and their expectations are going to shift based on our commitment to them. That's how it works. It's not like I feel like it one day, I feel like it the next. This is an act of worship and obedience to the commission, the great commission, to see the goodness of God through the gospel spread throughout all the corners of this earth. And so what I'm asking is, would you pray? If you're married, would you pray as a couple, as a family? If you're single, take your time. <laughs> I know you've got a really disposable income. I'm just going to say. If you're not buying roses... Raise a church planner. But in all seriousness, this is us as a church being able to commit monthly so that these people that are on the forefront of the mission field can have stability. Now, that's not to remove faith. It's just for us to honor our commitment so that we can say, you know what? We're people you can depend upon. We're a church that honors our word. And we're going to partner you with this, with you in this. And so... Once you've got that next, the week after next, because it's Easter next week, we're going to talk about how and, and what we're looking at. But, but more importantly, if you give online, that's most of us. So if you give via the, the e-transfer, you're just putting in missions. And online, that actually has an option to be tithe, others, or missions. Click missions. Click missions. But what I'm going to ask you to do is make that commitment with God. And then over the next few months, we're going to tally what as a church we have started to commit to monthly and we're going to announce it. And we're going to let you know there's going to be times where these churches are going to come to us from the other side of the world and they're going to say, hey, God's called us uh, to really you know, build, a, build a facility here. Can you partner with us? And then we're going to come together and we're going to take up an offering in excitement. Or they're going to say, hey, we've just had a natural disaster and there's been a flood and the roof has collapsed and we need to repair it emergency, emer- uh, immediately. It's an emergency. And we're going to take up an offering. But we're going to do that on top of our monthly missions offering. And the reason for that is, is that they're not asking us to help with the roof by taking the food from their table. You get what I'm saying here? Good. Church, let's finish with a song. Let's finish with this thought. Hey, who is this King of glory that I get to call Jesus? Is my worship convenient or committed? Am I doing it out of vanity or am I doing it out of victory? Is this therapy for my guilt? 
or am I surrendering and just giving him glory for the goodness that he bestows upon us so graciously? Church, let's worship together. We hope you enjoyed this message. We would love you to subscribe to our weekly podcast. Other ways you can connect with Avant Life is through YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Or check out our website at avantlifechurch.com.